If you have your Bibles with you, we will be looking at the book of Deuteronomy, uh, which is where we will be um, for the foreseeable future, um, which is never all that foreseeable, but nevertheless, uh, we will be there for um, a good portion of the, the coming Sundays. Uh, it, is, it is good to be back. We were um, happy to be down in Florida, although uh, my family does have a bone to pick with most of you. We heard that the weather was nice while we were gone, and that was really rude. Uh, you probably should have at least had bad weather, so we could have appreciated being in warm weather more, um, and or you could have just kept it around, but instead you shuffed it off right when we were about to come home. We really do. Uh, no, we don't. We don't appreciate that at all. Uh, it was kind of rude, but we are glad to be back all the same. It is good to be back in the house of the Lord with uh, you. Uh, we do have a place where we worship down there, but uh, it certainly is not the same, and so it is, it is good that we are back here with you all. Um, we will be studying through the book of Deuteronomy, and we're switching now uh, back to the Old Testament. This particular sermon, uh, as we switch back to a new book, is going to be a, a little bit atypical um, because I wanted to do some, some preparatory remarks. And at first, I was going to try and, and wrap those remarks into a longer sermon, um, but then I figured that we probably didn't have time for all of that. Um, and so what we're going to do today is sort of do two different things. We're, one, going to address the the issue of actually going back to the Old Testament and why we go to the Old Testament. And some of that is not going to be terribly new for you. Some of you are probably uh, wondering why we would even ask such a question, but I want to give you a couple of new things to sort of chew on as to why the Old Testament is terribly important to us today. And then the second part is really just an introduction into the book of Deuteronomy, specifically um, the background of Deuteronomy and the theme of Deuteronomy, which we will sort of lay out for you today. And in the coming weeks, we're going to fill that in. So the first question, why should we study the Old Testament? Not only is its name implying that it's old, and we know now the old things are not as good as new things. Uh, that is the way Americans live their lives. We have old TVs in our house, and we replace them with newer TVs. We have older cars, and we replace them with newer cars. Um, if you want my older car, you can have it, and you can replace it with your newer car, and we will see how that trade works. Most of you wouldn't make that trade. So we know that the new is better, and even, even the name of old to new, we know that the old has been surpassed in the New Testament. More than that, more than that, we know that the New Testament is sort of the culmination of the Old Testament. It is the final chapters of the Old Testament, and it is the full and final revelation of God through Jesus Christ. And so there's a good question to be asked is, why should we even go back to the Old Testament? If we have fuller revelation in the New Testament, if that is the Testament and the covenant that we find ourselves in. So Testament is just a different word for covenant. There is an older covenant that has been sort of over wrought. It's been, it's been surpassed by a newer covenant made in Jesus Christ's blood. If we have that newer covenant, why bother ourselves with the old? Why concern ourselves with studying it and worrying about it when we know that according to Paul, the law is no more over us? We don't have to be concerned with it. Why should we take our time studying a book which is frankly very much given over to studying and working through the law? These are good questions for us to ask and certainly it's something that we need to we need to sit down and study. The first answer to that is certainly not, 
is certainly not that the New Testament cannot support us in everything that we need. The New Testament is there and it can give us everything we need. We could go through sitting in one book for the rest of our lives and we would never be able to plumb the depths of it. So I could start a new sermon series, which I'm not going to do. We could start a new sermon series through the book of Colossians and come to completely different conclusions and have totally different sermons and and gain so much insight from that book that we would never exhaust it. We're not coming to the Old Testament because we're worried about sort of getting through the New Testament. That's never going to happen. The first reason is, one, it's simply Scripture. It's Scripture. So in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul very clearly says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is usable, it's profitable for Christians to train us in righteousness and to do every good work. Now, when we read that, we are thinking of this, right? We, we automatically think of the entire corpus of the New Testament. And I, I have no doubt that Paul, when he wrote at times, he knew he was writing the words of God. He was writing scripture. I, I don't have any doubt that Paul sort of understood behind his writings to the Spirit of God and that he thought that he was writing scripture. So certainly he thought that this applied to him and his writings as well, but primarily for Timothy and for the other people in New Testament times. When Paul wrote that, he was writing it about the Old Testament. So when he says that all scripture is breathed out by God, he was talking about the Old Testament. The Old Testament is good for reproof, rebuke, and correction, for training up the people of God in righteousness so that they might go out and do good works. It is the Old Testament that is like that. And if we are going to uphold that all scripture is breathed out by God, then we must uphold that the Old Testament is likewise breathed out by God and it is good for us. Now, it might not be obvious right away why it's good for us. It might be difficult for us to get at the nugget behind why and how and where God is going to use it in our lives. But nevertheless, we know from Paul that it is good for us, for us, and it can be used to train us in righteousness. And so it is a good thing that we go to the Old Testament for that it is simply Scripture. We know that the New Testament is there. Okay, So we do not read the Old Testament as though the Old Testament as though the New Testament wasn't there, okay? So we're not saying that we're going to come back and just treat is the, the revelation that has been given to us through Deuteronomy on its own merits. Rather, we read it in light of the New Testament. We read it in light of the anticipatory revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that that is the final end of the Old Testament, that Jesus Christ will come, that he will make atonement for sin, that he will provide a new birth to the people of God. All of that is well, good, and true. And we come then to the Old Testament to read it in light of the New Testament. It is scripture. But secondly, secondly, it's a different perspective for us. It provides a different perspective for us. Anytime we read scripture, we are automatically, we should automatically be be prone to reading scripture in light of other scripture. Now, there's a time at which we should read Mark, as we've done in our community groups, only in light of Mark, only in light of what Mark says, but there are other times when it's really helpful to have Matthew and Luke open next to Mark so that we can compare those accounts. And then John, even in addition to that. And then we can bring in Paul to see what he has to say. So we're always reading the New Testament, when we read the New Testament, in light of other New Testament books. Likewise, we do the same thing for Colossians. So when we read in Colossians, that the fullness of deity dwells bodily in Christ, we not only think of that particular verse in Colossians and dwell on it, but we think of that in terms of Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and the, the great 
divinity of Jesus Christ that's mentioned there. And then we automatically think of the incarnation and we go to Luke and to Matthew and we, we go to John and we think of how the Holy Spirit has so overwhelmed the womb of Mary to provide the incarnation of Jesus Christ there in her womb. And then automatically we should think of Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation of the world and how God through Christ has created the world and the word. So we're automatically thinking in terms of all of these different perspectives. So when you read John, it's impossible to not read it and think of the Old Testament. It's impossible to read a book like Revelation, even when it doesn't quote the Old Testament. It's just rife with Old Testament allusions and imagery. Whether we read the Gospels or Chronicles, this is the way we read it. Well, what ends up happening is if we just read the New Testament— what we're doing is we're, we're sort of looking back and we get glimpses of Old Testament passages here, there, and elsewhere. We, we have books like Romans, which are ripe with imagery from Isaiah and the Psalms, and we read those books and we get to land sort of for a momentary glimpse in Isaiah, and we read the passage around that, but then we go back to Romans. We were down in Florida, and I was reminded... Um, of how much fun Kennedy Space Center is. If you've never been there, it, it is a, a really interesting place to go. We go there all the time. My father-in-law happens to be kind of a space nut, and so it, it's good we get to go there and walk around the visitor center. And when we do space exploration, we do it because there's other things out there for us to learn from and to explore. So we send rovers. We have telescopes up there that help explain to us what's going on in our atmosphere. But even farther out, we send probes out to Mars and to Saturn and, and to so, sort of cycle around our Milky Way uh, solar system, or our solar system, and then the Milky Way as well. And we set up telescopes. So we've got the Hubble Space Telescope up there, and pretty soon the James Webb Telescope, an even more powerful telescope, is going to be going up. And all of that is to look out, okay? But the amazing thing to me is when we send astronauts up, which we don't do that often anymore, but when we do and, and you talk to them or they, they give lectures on these things, when you see interviews of them, one of the things that they always mention is once they get up into outer space, they don't mention how awesome the moon is. They don't mention how beautiful the stars are. They don't mention that the sun is there and present. What do they mention? They mention how beautiful the earth is. They, they, they're just they've got a perspective on it that they never had before. What we do, if we just read the New Testament, is we can understand something of the Old Testament by launching little satellites out back into it. We launch probes back into the Old Testament to pick up pieces and bits of information that come from the Old Testament, and that's well and good. But it's oftentimes much better to actually launch ourselves into space, to go into the Old Testament so that we can see better the home in which we live which is the new covenant. Part of this is to give us simply a different perspective on that new covenant so that we can see it more clearly from a different vantage point, not one that looks back on the Old Testament, but that waits in the Old Testament to see what God will do in the new. Third, we study it not just because it's scripture or because it gives us a different perspective, which it does, but also because it is difficult. It's difficult. And the Old Testament is taken up by one very large, very important thing, that is the law. 
The law overwhelms all of the Old Testament. The law is not only the focus of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, but that law becomes the basis of Israel's faithfulness or unfaithfulness to God. The whole reason why kings are either considered good and holy before God or rancid before God is based on whether or not they uphold the Torah. It is based on whether or not they uphold the law. The longest chapter in the Bible is Psalm 119, which upholds the law. The law is good and right and pure and holy. But then when we come to the New Testament, we have grave difficulties because we know from reading Paul, because we're Protestant, because it's been hammered into us, that we are no more required to hold on to the law. The question is, what do we do with it then? How can we, who, who know that for our salvation we do not have to be held accountable to the law, read Psalm 119 with a straight face that upholds the law? That, that claims the goodness and the necessity of the law. How are we to do that? This is not just a, a momentary problem, right? We've talked about this before when it comes to our understanding of morality being based out of the law. It's very easy then for people to go back to the law and say, you think that the, the law gives you morality. Why don't you stone people for doing X, Y, or Z? Our grace in the gospel makes understanding and our appropriation of the law very difficult. But it's not just for us today. This has been a problem throughout Christian history, and you should be happy in a way to know that it has been a problem that, that existed even in the early church. We have whole books given over to the difficulty that the early church had in dealing with the law and grace. So not only in Acts chapters 10, 11, and 15 do we have a direct appeal to how to deal with the law under the grace of Christ, but the entire book of Galatians is pretty much given over to this problem. So there's one way of reading the book of Galatians, which is that Paul has planted this church and that Judaizers have come in and they're trying to make people follow all of the law. But I, I think that the book of Galatians is more difficult than that. I think it's, it's more complex than that. The real issue in Galatians is not that there were non-Christians, Judaizers, who were coming in to try and wreck the gospel for others. It's that there were Christians who didn't know how to appropriate the law in the gospel. So if you look at a passage like 2.16, which is the total center of that epistle of Galatians, Galatians 2.16, I think an appropriate translation of that passage would be something like this. Paul talking to Peter, but also talking to everyone, both the Galatians, his antagonists, talking to himself says this, We know that even those who are defined by works of the law cannot be justified except by faith in Jesus Christ. That is something that everyone agrees on. Even those people who define themselves by works of the law, even those people who give themselves over to doing the law perfectly. Paul himself says that he was, in Philippians, blameless before the law. He says even those people who were given over to doing the law all the time as best they could, even those can only be justified by faith in Christ. Everyone, everyone in the Galatian controversy would have agreed with that. The antagonists would have agreed with that. It is only by grace that you were saved they would have agreed. Sola fide, the whole way down, they would have agreed. Where they disagreed was what do we then do with the law? To think that we can just push the law off 
and have it be unessential does away with a huge amount of the Old Testament. And it's a very simple answer to a very complicated question that the early church clearly wrestled with. And if the early church is wrestling with things that we don't wrestle with, I would suggest that we're overlooking something. It is difficult. And so we need to go back and we need to deal with the difficulty inherent in the law. Fourthly, it is, of course, the foundation of the New Testament. Just as I said earlier, you cannot read very far at all in the New Testament before you come up to this large, huge, and gaping problem that is that almost everything in the New Testament is based on the Old Testament. It's just it's the way it is. You cannot escape. You cannot rightly understand the New Testament if you do not know something fundamental about the Old Testament. You can't. You don't understand who Jesus is. You don't understand who God is. We can talk all we want to about atonement, but you will never under rightly understand what the atonement is outside of the Old Testament sacrificial system. We can talk about being a priesthood of believers, but that's never going to be capable of sinking into you truly what God means for you by that unless you understand the priesthood of the Old Testament. We can talk about how Jesus is the new Israel, that Israel is gone, that we are now the people of God. But unless you understand something about what the people of God were, you're never going to understand what the people of God are. We can talk about the incarnation. We can talk about our union with Christ. We can talk about the kingdom of God, and you will never understand those things unless you understand them in the Old Testament first. Simply put, we cannot avoid the Old Testament. It is difficult, but we cannot avoid it because to rightly understand the New Testament, we have to understand the Old. Now, many of those things you guys probably didn't need to be pushed in the direction of saying, okay, well, let's, let's then study it, as though, as though you would have given me pushback on studying something that is clearly in God's word. Nevertheless, I think it's helpful to work through those things first before we start to study a book of the Old Covenant because it helps clarify why it is that we're doing what we're doing. We could spend the rest of our days until I die in the pulpit, hopefully, th- till the day I, not today or maybe next week, but we'll see, There's more jokes to be made, but we'll move on. We could spend the entirety of our lives only dealing with the New Testament and be richly fed, okay? But we cannot be as richly fed in that New Testament unless we dig and plant seed in the Old Testament to see the growth that the New Testament provides. So, we go to the book of Deuteronomy. Now, what follows, we will have a very brief short and concise introduction to the book of Deuteronomy. The majority of our time then will be spent on the third point, just so you know as we work through this. The first thing we want to say is that the Pentateuch is one book. The Pentateuch is one book, and it should be read as one book. Now, that's naturally confusing because as you've opened your Bibles, I said to open it to the book of Deuteronomy, which is the fifth book of the Pentateuch. So the Pentateuch is five books. It's Genesis, Leviticus, or Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they've broken it down into five books. But those five books have almost unanimously throughout history been treated as one book, the Torah of God. Okay? It is the only book, so when you read about the Sadducees in the New Testament, that is the only book that they considered as scripture. It was one book. Now, it's broken down into five different volumes or five different parts, but we really should treat it as one book. It's clear that the whole of Scripture treats Deuteronomy as part of that one book, 
Because you have passages like Mark 12, 26, 2 Chronicles 25, 4. You have passages like Ezra 6, 18 and Nehemiah 13, 1, which clearly treat the book of Moses as the entire Torah. There is one book. And even so, you can go throughout the, the Pentateuch and you can realize that the Pentateuch only really exists as a book, as a collective whole. So when you read through even Genesis, right? So you, you're reading through Genesis and you come to Genesis 15 and God is reaffirming the promise to Abraham and he causes sleep to fall upon Abraham and he shows up to Abraham and he promises him not only that the covenant that I've given to you will I uphold, but what's more, he says this, I'm going to take your offspring and I'm going to move them down to Egypt and they will be oppressed there, but I will call them out, Right? The remainder of the book of Genesis is leading towards that conclusion. The people are being driven down, right? That's only half of the promise. To see the fulfillment of that promise, you need the book of Exodus. To see the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham in some way, shape, or form, you need not only that, but you need the further promise that they will actually go and inherit the land, which means you need numbers and you need the travelogue of the 40 years. All of the book has to fit together and you have to have all five parts for it to fit together. It is one book. Nevertheless, we treat it in five different parts. So you can think of it in terms of something like Lord of the Rings, right? So when J.R.R. Tolkien was going to publish Lord of the Rings, he actually wrote the 1,000 pages of it and sent it to the publisher. And the publisher looked at him and said, you're crazy, man. We can't publish this book. What we can do, not that it wasn't bad or that it wasn't good. He, he recognized the genius behind it, but he said, we cannot publish this all at once. We've got to separate it out into three different books. So Tolkien went back, redid it, separated it out. So it was three separate books, and then they published them one at a time. But it was all meant to be read as one book, okay? That is the way the Pentateuch is laid out for us. While it is many things, it is one book. And you can see this already in Deuteronomy. So we'll read the first five verses of Deuteronomy. And you can see that this assumes that you know where the story comes from. So Deuteronomy is simply an extension of the books that have come before. So Deuteronomy 1, beginning in verse 1, reads, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. In the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the fortieth year, on the first day of the eleventh month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them, after he defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Azeroth, and, <clears throat> and in uh, Edre. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. You'll notice in how that begins, you have to already assume to know of all of the desert wanderings. Okay, All of it fits because all of it has come together in the first four books, this being the last one. Okay, So the Pentateuch is one book and we need then, when we interpret Deuteronomy, to keep that in mind. That all of these things have to be kept together. Secondly, Deuteronomy explains the law. Deuteronomy explains the law. The actual term Deuteronomy means second law. Okay? It is a misnomer. It is a bad misnomer, which you should do away with. 
We're not going to rename the book. Um, I'm not going to give you a new name for the book because that would be horribly confusing, although I'm tempted to. But Deuteronomy means second law. But at no point in time should you think that what Moses is doing here is climbing up on a mountain to give the law for a second time or rather to even give a secondary addendum to the law so that he's giving more laws to the people of God. That is not the purpose of Deuteronomy. It is an unfortunate misnomer. You can tell in verse 5 what's going on here. Notice what it says. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. They've already got the law. They already have the law of God placed before them. And what Moses is seeking to do is provide for them an explanation of the law. Now, this again goes to how difficult the law is. There's a point at which the, the law is very, very simple. It's easy, right? So you can go to Leviticus 19.19, 19, and it's very simple. It says you cannot plant two different seeds in the same field. You can't do corn and wheat together. You also cannot wear clothing of separate materials. So cotton and wool together, eh, no, no good. You've got to wear different or you've got to wear the same material all the way throughout. So in that sense, that law is it's very simple. There's no, there's no sort of wringing your hands. I wonder what he means by that. It's very obvious what he means by that. But it's difficult in the sense of why is that law given? What is the purpose and the meaning behind that law? The book of Deuteronomy is meant to explicate what it means to follow something like the Ten Commandments. When, the, when God says, you are to have no idols before me, let's, let's, let's work on that. Let's, let's see what, what God means by that. So if you go up to Deuteronomy chapter 5, for instance. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we have a re-giving of the Ten Commandments which seems odd because in Leviticus, we've already had the giving of the Ten Commandments, or in Exodus, we've already had the giving of the Ten Commandments. Well, what you then understand is, by the time you get to chapter 6, what Moses is doing is giving more laws. But those laws are all focused on the unique relationship of God to his people. Right? So he says this in the beginning of chapter 6. Now, this is the commandment, statutes and rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land which you are going over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and all his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, is that a new commandment? Yes, literally, new commandment. However, that is exactly the same thing as saying things like, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Moses is not taking up his time giving the people something they've already got. Rather, each of these commandments is meant to say, this is how you fulfill that commandment. How are you going to fulfill the commandment that you shall have no other gods before me? You fulfill that by knowing that there is one God in all of heaven and all of earth. There is one God and he was the one who called you. You were to serve him and him alone. 
you are to have no other gods before him. So when we read through this, do not think of these as individual laws, but think of these laws, these commandments that are being given, as aids to understand the purpose and the nature of the law. They are to build people up in the kingdom of God so that Israel might maintain the land. Deuteronomy is an explanation of the law. But more important than that, the most important thing that we are going to talk about today is that Moses is central and outside. He is both the center of Deuteronomy, but very, very importantly, he is outside. It is clear that Moses is the center almost of everything that happens from the book of Exodus down through the end of Deuteronomy. Moses is the one that leads his people out. He was chosen from his birth. He has a birth narrative, just like other very important men in the Old Testament. And the Pentateuch ends when he dies. It is clear that this book is all about him. And yet the odd thing is that the only reason why Deuteronomy actually exists is because Moses is forbidden from entering the promised land. And it's clear that this is a very important thing to Moses because two times at the beginning of Deuteronomy and two times at the end of Deuteronomy does he mention that he is not allowed to go into the land with the people. So, if you flip, maybe you need to flip your page. I need to flip mine. But at the end of chapter 1, we get this in 134. The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore... Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. That is, after they were supposed to, Moses allowed them to have spies go up into Israel, the spies came back and said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey and huge dudes, let's not take it. And the people said, uh, yeah, we're, we're all for that. And Caleb said, no, 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 we can do it. And the people rebelled against Moses and against Aaron and against Caleb and against Joshua, and they refused to, and so God punished them, right? God punishes them. Now listen to what Moses says in verse 37, which isn't even, by the way, isn't even in numbers connected with that event. In verse 37, he says, even with me, the Lord was angry on your account and said, you shall not go in there. Later on in chapter 3, verse 23 and following in chapter 3, And I pleaded with the Lord at the time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Moses feels very particularly that this is an important issue. The whole reason he's giving Deuteronomy, he thinks, is because of what Israel has done. Israel is keeping him from going into the promised land. Later on, in verse thir- chapter 31, the ending of the book of Deuteronomy. Again, we have a reference to this. Chapter 31, beginning in verse 1, So Moses continued to speak these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go in or to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, You shall not go over this Jordan. 
he has been clearly given a declaration that he is not to lead them anymore. Again, at the end of chapter 32, beginning in verse 48, that very day the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people as Aaron, your brother, died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land that I'm giving to the people of Israel. Two times at the beginning, two times at the end. The reason why Moses is giving Deuteronomy, the reason why he is instructing them in the law before they go in, is because these are the last words he's ever going to speak. He knows that. He cannot go into the land. The question becomes, why? You'll notice in that last passage in Deuteronomy, again, when Moses speaks, the words of Moses that come out, he blames the people of Israel. He blames them. He says, on your account, I can't go in. In chapter 32, though, it's clear that God links it to faith. He says, you broke faith with me. The passage in question is actually Numbers 20. So if you would, flip back to Numbers 20. This is actually the passage, the passage, where Moses apparently sins and is kept out of entering the promised land. We'll begin reading in verse 2 and we'll read through verse 13. Now there was no water for the congregation And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought this assembly of the Lord into the wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. What did Moses do wrong there? Now, 
There are people who appeal to the fact that God says, speak to the rock, and Moses struck the rock. But God also tells Moses to take the staff with him. And Moses did actually call forth for the water to be brought from the rock. More than that, it can't be the fact that he struck the rock because you'll notice that somebody else is taken down with him here, and that is Aaron. Aaron is taken down with him as well. Aaron didn't strike the rock. Maybe it's because of how he reacted to the people of Israel. But you'll notice that what God says Aaron and Moses have both done is not believed in him or made him holy before the people of Israel. There is something particular that happens here that doesn't happen in other places in Numbers. So if you go back to Numbers 14, I promise all of this flipping back will be worth it in the end. If you go back to Numbers 14, the people here rebel against them. This is the actual rebellion about the spies, okay? This is the rebellion that Moses reports in Deuteronomy 1, okay? So the spies have gone into the land. They come back with a good report. The land is beautiful, flowing with milk and honey. Great big people there. Let's not do it. They rebel, and in verse 11 of chapter 14, the Lord says to Moses, how long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a greater nation and mightier than they. But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them that he has killed them in the wilderness." Moses immediately, when they rebel, he stands up and he says, no, God, you cannot because it will defame your name. You must hold back from destroying the people of Israel. And God relinquishes. Now he does destroy that whole generation, but he does it over the course of 40 years so that they can repopulate. So another generation might come into the land. They have refused to go into the land, so God refuses to give the land to them. Later, couple of chapters further in chapter 16. Korah's rebellion. Korah and part of his cadre of people rise up against Moses and against Aaron and they say, who, have, who has made you prince among us? They say back down in verse 12, we will not come up. Moses has called many of them forward. We will not come up. It is a small thing that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey, that is Egypt, to kill us in the wilderness, that you must make yourself also a prince over us? They say, we refuse your leadership. We'll have nothing to do with you. So, further down in chapter 16, in verse 41, not only did Korah and his rebellion come against God, God then strikes Korah and his rebellion, but then in verse 41, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Moses called for God to show his retribution on Korah and his followers. The Lord did it by opening up the earth and swallowing where they were camping. Okay? So the people of Israel come back and they grumble against them, saying, You killed them. And when the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. 
And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And notice what Moses and Aaron did. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put fire on it from off of the altar, and lay incense on it, and carry it quickly to the congregation, and make atonement for them, for wrath has come out from the Lord. So the plague has begun. So Aaron took It is Moses had said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put incense on and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. And the plague was stopped. The people rebel. Moses and Aaron intercede. The people rebel. Moses and Aaron intercede. Then in chapter 20, the people rebel. We hear nothing from Moses and Aaron. Nothing. As a matter of fact, the Lord doesn't even come and say, I'm going to destroy them. Right? He knows Moses and Aaron. There's, when you have a pattern laid down, when that pattern is broken, it's very important. The pattern that is always laid down up through this part of the narrative from Exodus 32 and the golden calf. Remember, they do the golden calf and Moses intercedes for the people of Israel saying, Lord, don't destroy them. I will destroy them. Lord, don't destroy them. In chapter 14 and chapter 16, I'm going to destroy them. Don't destroy them. Intercede for them. But here in chapter 20, Moses is broken. Listen to the words of the people again. Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Remember what happened. The people rebelled against God and God came to Moses and said, Moses, I'll tell you what I'll do, man. I will make you into a greater nation than this people. And Moses flat out turned him down. He turned him down. And then this people who were saved only by that act of Moses, that great act of humility of Moses, Those same people said, I wish you would have taken that deal because then we would have died and we wouldn't be so thirsty out here in the middle of the desert. Moses and Aaron go to the tent of presence, but they don't go any further. God does not threaten to kill his people. Instead, he talks directly to Moses and directly to Aaron and says, you are to go out there and you are to save those people. And Moses does it. And the fact that Moses is so clearly annoyed with the people comes forward in how he responds to them. Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Remember what Moses prayed for when he interceded for them after they rebelled. The Egyptians will hear of it, Lord. And if you destroy these people, they will know what? That the people were weak and feeble. No, no the Egyptians will know that you couldn't give them the land. The whole point of Moses interceding for these people was he knew that God was able to give them the land. My guess is, and it's only a guess, but I think it's a good one, my guess is that here, Moses no longer thinks that God is able to save these people. They are a wicked and a rebellious people. They cannot be tamed. They cannot be broken. They cannot do what is right. And he looks at them and he says, I got nothing for you, God. I will not intercede again. They do not deserve to get the land. They deserve to be crushed and humiliated by you. They are rebels. And so it is both the people's fault, as Moses said. It is on their account 
that Moses was driven to faithlessness because he knew that they were rebels. He knew that they were not good enough to keep the Lord's law. He knew that they would not stay faithful to him. And eventually it broke him. And it was his faithlessness in thinking that God couldn't do what he had promised to do. God had promised them, you will have the land. That had no bearing on how righteous they were. And Moses well knew that. And when he fails then to intercede for them, he has failed to show faithfulness to God. He has failed to uphold God as holy and powerful and mighty and able to do his will because he is not like the other gods. He is faithful to his people. He is holy and powerful and mighty. And Moses fails to uphold him as that. So therefore, he stands outside and he looks in. But we also know very well that Moses is not known by us as a man of no faith. In fact, Moses is upheld as one of the great men of faith in the Old Testament. While this one act of faithlessness was enough for him not to get the land, it also provides him with a great deal of perspective. And you see that seeping through in the book of Deuteronomy. Flip for the final time to the back of Deuteronomy. The whole problem with Moses not entering was the people continually rebelled and he eventually gave up on them and he said, God could not enter you into the land. You were so rebellious, stiff-necked, and hard-hearted. There is no way that you are ever going to exist in the land. That opinion has not changed. Moses has absolutely no faith, no faith in the people of Israel to uphold their part of the bargain. Let's be very clear at that from the outset. The law as it is given to Moses, Moses relates it to the people and he is inherently pessimistic from the word go that they are ever going to be able to uphold it. In chapters 28, 27 and 28, we have the blessings for keeping the law, the curses for falling away. They renew the covenant and then this is what he says in chapter 30. And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Why? Why does he think the Lord, their God, will drive them out of the land? Because yes, the blessings will come to them, but they will break the covenant and the curses are coming as well. It's a matter of time. The curse was that they were to be driven out into the nations. The curse is that they were separated from the land. The curse is that they became like all the other peoples. Moses inherently prophesies that day is coming. He does not hold out that you might escape this fate. He, he doesn't say, listen, if you try really, really hard, this is, this is possible that you guys might cobble this whole thing together and we might get it to work. He holds out no faith for them, but listen to what he says. When you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you and return to the Lord your God, you and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uppermost parts or uttermost parts of the heavens. 
From there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. He is totally pessimistic when it comes to whether or not the people of Israel can do what they need to do. But he is no longer pessimistic at all. No matter how hard the curse is, no matter how far it scatters them, notice, to the uppermost parts of heaven, to the bottom of Sheol, from the edges of the earth, it doesn't matter where he sends you, God will keep his promise and he will bring you back. If it is your hard heart, he will overcome it. If it is that your heart is not circumcised, he will circumcise it. If it is that the law is not within you, he will place it within you. He will give you a new heart. He will give you a new spirit. There will come a day when God will do what he has promised to do. That, that is the meaning of Deuteronomy. It is not a book premised upon the keeping of the law. It is a book premised upon trusting in the promises of God. What Moses could only hope for, you and I have in full. Moses, like Abraham before him, looked forward to a day in which he might see the promise of God come true day has dawned in Jesus Christ. And it flourishes even now. The promise of bringing those who are scattered home is coming true as the gospel is spread across the nations. The promise of a circumcised law-abiding heart is coming true as the gospel spreads across the nations. The promise of a heart that loves God with all its might is coming true as the gospel spreads across the nations. The promise of God, in Paul's words, has found its yes and amen in Christ Jesus. It is all true now. Friends, if you don't know the Lord, today is the day. Confess your sin before him and he is faithful to forgive you. He will call you back from even the uttermost ends of the earth. No one is beyond his ability to forgive, to bind, and to heal. He can do that for you, and he will for those who call out to him in honesty and sincerity and confess the name of Jesus Christ for the salvation of their souls. For those of us who do know him and his saving might, let us praise God for his wonderful power in keeping his promises through our sin and our rebellion. All the more, God is faithful and true. Let us pray. Father, we do indeed thank you for your kindness in keeping your promises in Christ Jesus. You have taken a rebellious people and made them into a nation of priests, taken a people who were far away, who did not know you, and through the atonement and sacrifice of Christ our Lord has brought them near and made them your children. We pray that this work might continue here at Crossway, and far off across the ends of the world. We pray that your glory may be made known, that you will save your people from their sin, that you will heal us, that you will bind us, and that we might declare your glory and your good name.
to all. For you are powerful and mighty, and there is nothing that you cannot do. We pray these things because of the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.